Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 18th, 2015, and my guest is author and science writer Matt Ridley. Matt, welcome back to EconTalk. Russ, it's great to be back on the show again. We are going to talk about climate change, uh, your view of the current state of our scientific knowledge and some controversies you've been in. How has your thinking on this issue evolved over time? Give us uh, some background. Well, I've covered climate change as a journalist for more than 25 years. I first wrote about it in the late 1980s for The Economist. Uh, At the time, I took everything that uh, alarmed scientists were saying at face value. Uh, I gradually became more skeptical in the 1990s. Uh, I then returned to alarmism for a while because of seeing the hockey stick graph, which seemed to me to demonstrate unambiguously that what was happening today was much more drastic, was unprecedented and much more drastic than what we'd seen. So when I discovered that that graph was actually very misleading, once you understood the statistics behind it, I began to look at all the rest of the evidence. And the more I looked, the more skeptical I got, not about the idea that climate changes, not about the idea that mankind can influence the climate, not about the idea that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but about the idea that we are at all likely to see dangerous climate change within the next 100 years or so. So we're going to come back maybe and talk about the hockey stick, but one issue that hangs over this conversation and it hangs over our conversations here at EconTalk on economics many times is this issue of the facts. And I find it remarkable the deeper you dig into something, the more often you realize that the facts are a little bit ambiguous, uncertain. They're they're created. They're not just – coming down from um, from Sinai. And when people tell me, well, the facts speak for themselves, I always get suspicious because they never do. Uh, they have to be uh, prepared and measured and uh, packaged, and that often makes a difference. Now, as you said, you're not skeptical about a lot of things. Uh, in fact, you describe yourself as, I love this phrase, a lukewarmer. Uh, that's one word. That's not a name. It's not Luke Space Warmer, although that would be an interesting character, I think, if we had a graphic <laughs> novel about uh, this project. But uh, what do you mean by Luke Warmer? What I mean by Luke Warmer is somebody who is not challenging the idea that carbon dioxide levels are increasing or that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas or that we've seen warming in recent years and are likely to see warming continue, but is challenging the idea that there is a strong likelihood that this will turn dangerous at some point in the future. Uh, in fact, I mean, I would often go further and say, uh, actually, it's, there's pretty good evidence that the carbon dioxide uh, emissions we're putting into the atmosphere through fossil fuels are actually in many ways improving the environment. Uh, and by that, I mean, we've seen a 14% increase in uh, the amount of green vegetation on the planet in the last 30 years, almost certainly largely because of the extra CO2, which is enabling plants in all ecosystems to grow more vigorously. Uh, and that has slightly improved the greenery of the planet, particularly in arid areas like the Sahel and Western Australia. So there are really quite, and and, and I haven't even begun to mention the effect of slightly more rainfall on, on uh, crops and so on. Drought on the whole has been decreasing over the last 30 years. Uh, so there are all sorts of reasons for thinking that for the planet as well as for mankind, carbon dioxide emissions are a good thing. I mean, a far bigger example, of course, is the fact that if we burn coal, oil, and gas, we don't burn wood, and so we don't chop down forests. Uh, You know, there is no doubt that switching to fossil fuels enabled us to stop destroying forests on a massive scale, particularly in the Western world, where forests are recovering a lot of land very rapidly. So I think the the conversation about climate change is often terribly one-sided, talks only about the damaging impacts and never about the positive impacts of fossil fuels uh, and their emissions. Uh, And uh, a lukewarmer like me is someone who thinks that we are unlikely to see dangerous climate change uh, and we are quite likely to see net benefits. Um, 
Meanwhile, this doesn't make me someone who's not concerned about the environment. I think there are some very serious environmental challenges. Top of my list is invasive species, which are helping to decimate native species, on, particularly on islands all over the world still. And this has been a big problem for hundreds of years. And it's getting worse at the moment. And I think those issues are being neglected because we're spending all our time talking about climate change. So when you suggest that it might actually be good for humanity or the world to have um, more CO2, that must drive uh, some people uh, very uh, crazy. And we will talk about the kind of reactions you've been getting uh, over the last uh, few years to your to your writing and, and positions. Why do you think uh, – the to focus on the key part, I think, of the lukewarming uh, – the lukewarmer position, why do you think that there's little or no risk of dangerous climate change? So there might be, we've had, I think, eight-tenths of a degree of centigrade warming over the last, I forget how long. Um, the worry is we might go to four or six. Uh, why aren't you worried about that? True, it might be, you know, the dose makes the poison. Maybe a little bit of more CO2 is better for the for human life and the planet. But when we get into the range of, of the higher increases that uh, some people are worried about, those would seem to be pretty dangerous. Yes. Well, two reasons. One is because the rate of warming has been much slower than predicted. Uh, so if you go back and look uh, at what the uh, IPCC's climate models have predicted, uh, we have seen much less warming over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years than those models have predicted. We've seen about, we've seen a little more than 0.1 degree per decade. Um, the IPCC, remember, in 2013 came out and said that it is very confident that more than half of the warming since 1950 is man-made. Now, uh, we've had 0.8 of a degree since 1880, about 0.5 of a degree since 1950. More than half of that is 0.25 of a degree. So they're saying that something like a third of a degree of warming is man-made over 50 years. Now, that's extremely hard to measure, and we've got no really good evidence that we're measuring it accurately. In fact, the surface temperatures tend to find a slightly faster rate than the satellites, which implies that we are contaminating the record with urban heat island effects and things like that, local warming, in other words, not global warming. So that's the first reason, is that we've got nothing in the data we've seen so far to suggest that increasing carbon dioxide from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04%, which is what we've done, uh, has produced uh, uh, um, anything like the speed of warming that we would expect if the models were right. The second reason uh, is that the models are assuming something which we now know pretty well not to be true. And that is that the carbon dioxide warming will be hugely amplified by a water vapor warming. Um, it's, it's a very little known fact, which is often sort of kept out of the conversation to my frustration, that uh, it's widely agreed by the IPCC and everybody else that if you double carbon dioxide, you only get one degree of warming. 1.2, 1.1, you know, that sort of zone of, of, of warming. If Not you double, dangerous. If you double the stock, the, the if amount. If you double the levels of carbon dioxide right. in the atmosphere, yeah. Not double emissions, but double right. the level in the atmosphere from three, uh, 300 parts per million to 600 parts per million or 400 to 800. It doesn't matter where you double from because the graph is curved. If you double from 800 to 1600, you would still expect to get one degree of warming. That's the way the arithmetic works. Um, so why do they say that their estimate of climate sensitivity, which is the amount of warming from a doubling, is three degrees, not one degree? And the answer is because the models have an amplifying factor in that. They are saying that that small amount of warming will trigger a further warming through the effect mainly of water vapor and clouds. In other words, if you warm up the Earth by one degree, you will get more water vapor in the atmosphere, and that water vapor is itself a greenhouse gas, and that will cause you to treble the amount of warming you're getting. Now, that's the bit that lukewarmers like me challenge, because we say, look at the evidence. We're not seeing the same the increases in water vapor in the right parts of the atmosphere. You have to know which parts of the atmosphere you're looking at. 
to uh, to uh, justify that, and nor are you seeing the changes in cloud cover uh, that justify these positive feedback assumptions. Uh, some clouds amplify warming, some clouds do the opposite. They would uh, actually dampen warming. Uh, and most of the evidence we're seeing to suggest uh, to, to, to date suggests that clouds are actually having a damping effect on warming. So, you know, we're getting a little bit of warming as a result of carbon dioxide. The clouds are making sure that warming isn't very fast, and they're certainly not exaggerating or amplifying it. So there's very, very weak science to support that assumption of a trebling. Now, the really interesting thing is that when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with its latest report on this in the main report was in 2013. The, the follow-up report was last year in 2014. They had before them 14 different peer-reviewed papers of this climate sensitivity issue, all of which pointed to a much lower climate sensitivity than they had been assuming in the past. And these were the ones based on observational data. And rather than adjust their... Uh, they, so they, what they did, they adjusted the range of climate sensitivity they, they think is likely downward slightly from the previous year, from the previous report in 2007. But they did not give a best estimate of climate sensitivity, which had been three degrees in 2007. They uh, simply didn't give one. They simply said, we don't know what the best estimate is. Now, that's been completely ignored in all the impact models that countries are using around the world uh, to estimate how much warming they're going to get and what the effect will be on people's livelihoods and, and sea level and so on. Uh, they've gone on assuming that the best estimate is three degrees, whereas pretty well every scientist who's working on this is now accepting that climate sensitivity is more in the one to two degree range. So, uh, and that, by the way, is explains in an instant the rate of warming we've had over the last 50 years. If it's only in the one to two degree range climate sensitivity, then that would explain why we've only had a third to a half a degree of warming in 50 years when we should have had much more than that. So if you see what I mean, both the theory and the data support lukewarming and not alarm warming, alarming warming. Why is everyone going on about the future being alarming? Because there's a huge vested interest in that now. So we had um, we had Martin Weitzman on recently, for, uh, who uh, with uh, Gernot Wagner is the author of Climate Shock, and he takes Weitzman takes what he calls a precautionary approach or a fat tail approach. He says, "True, it's not so likely that that we're going to have catastrophic warming, but since there is a chance." Uh, a prudent approach is to take precautions and to reduce the possibility of that catastrophic outcome. In fact, his uh, the level that he's worried about is the 700 parts per million. I think we're around 400 right now. Do I have that yep. right? High 300s. Yep. So the yeah, worries. 0.04 percent or 0.07% is, I think, a more accurate way of describing it. But it doesn't sound so big, so they yeah. like to call it 400. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's parts per million. Uh, so it's a small number, but that's yeah. you know that's life. Uh, so his worry is that in the next hundred years, which is a long time, but it's a short time when lifespans are expanding and we're, we have direct worries about our children and grandchildren. Over the next hundred years, we could hit 700. 700 could. He suggests there's I think I think he suggests there's a 10 percent chance that that could lead to six degrees of warming. You're suggesting that's just not possible, given the relationship between carbon dioxide concentration and temperatures that we've observed in the past. Now, the, the question would be. So, one, I want you to verify that I've got that right. And then two, the question would be, it is possible that there are other things going on, that the reason we've only seen the small amounts of warming we have so far is because of sunspot activity, volcanic activity, uh, ocean changes, who knows? Where, what do we know about any of that? Yeah, well, you're quite right. There are huge uncertainties. We, we, we don't know about all of that. And one of the frustrations has been these recent papers saying things like, oh, well, the warming's gone into the ocean. And then instead of that being a sort of guess, a hypothesis, a, a, a really preliminary discovery, it becomes a, uh, oh, they've solved the problem, and therefore, you know, et cetera. It becomes, there's, there's premature consensus, premature certainty being declared the whole time in this debate, which is very dangerous. But back to the main point about Martin Weitzman's 
fat tails. You're abs- you described what he, his point very accurately, and it is a well-known argument that a small possibility of a very large disaster needs to be taken seriously. It's, in a sense, the same idea as the black swan argument that Nassim yeah. Talib said. Yeah, he puts, and he said I would the argue same, yeah. that it's actually... Sorry? Talib has made the same point about climate change. He is a... Yes, uh, indeed. He's exactly. in the same camp. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I would argue that it's actually a, no, a new version of Pascal's wager. If you remember, Blaise Pascal said, uh, I don't think God exists, but there's a... If he does... I'm in much deeper trouble for not believing in him. Whereas if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Therefore, it pays to believe in him, uh, uh, if you see what I mean. It's a sort take of a chance. Yep. The same take sort a of argument. Yep. Rather than take a chance. Eternal damnation uh, is a big negative. So a few years of religious observance is a good investment. That's the, that's the, that's the argument. Exactly. And I think that's a slightly closer analogy than other people would think. In other words, I think there's an element of sort of religious religiousness in all this. But... Um, uh, why do I think that uh, Weizmann's uh, approach in that respect is not the right way to think about it? Two reasons. One is empirical, that actually the fat tail on the distribution, the the, um, relatively significant, even if small, possibility of a really big warming has got a heck of a lot thinner in recent years. Um, This is partly because there was a a howling mistake in the 2007 IPCC report, the AR4 report, uh, where a graph was actually distorted. And a, a brilliant scientist named Nick Lewis pointed this out later. And, it, and it's one of the great shocking scandals, actually, of this, is that, that, that a graph, and I'm literally talking about the shape of the tail of a graph, was distorted to make a fatter tail than was necessary. When you correct that, the number gets smaller. When you feed in the prob- when you feed in all these 14 papers that I've been talking about, all the latest observational data, 42 scientists involved in publishing this stuff, most of the mainstream scientists, I'm not talking about skeptics here, um, when you feed all that in and you get the average probability density functions for uh, climate sensitivity, they turn out to have much thinner tails than was portrayed in the 2007 report and that Martin Weitzman is basing his argument on. So the 10% chance of six degrees of warming in 100 years becomes much less than 1% if you look at these charts now. So we've got to update our knowledge based on our latest information. And after all, we've got you know, five more years of data and five more years of relatively slow warming, etc., and five more years of knowledge about what in the past. And by the way, one of the excuses for the lack of warming of the last 50 years has since been exploded, and that is the aerosol one. It used to be thought that that we were dampening warming by putting so much sulfate into the atmosphere through the burning of coal, uh, that there is an effect there, but it turns out that now we know more about it, that effect is smaller than we thought. So for all these reasons... Um, the, the, the tail is very thin. The probability of really dramatic warming is extremely small indeed now, has been narrowed down. And that is acknowledged in the last IPCC report, not explicitly enough for my, for my liking, but it is there. And uh, it's got to the point where it's so thin that, in my view, it deserves no more attention than the small possibility that we will be hit by an asteroid, the small possibility that there will be a catastrophic uh, volcanic explosion, the small possibility that the measures we're taking against climate change, including renewable energy and uh, 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 preventing people getting hold of fossil fuels and things like that, will itself be very dangerous. You know, all these things could be dangerous, I mean, you know, aliens could arrive and take over the planet. Should we spend a lot of money now to try and prevent that possibility? You have to, at some point, take a reasonable view that certain possibilities are too small to spend a fortune on. Well, some would argue if that aliens attacked the planet, it would stimulate the economy as we prepared for it. But I will leave that to another episode. Um, I want to I mention two more factual issues And then I want to turn to the social issue of how these – how the climate science issue is getting discussed and and the polarization of it that you've written about recently. Uh, The first factual issue I want to mention is when when I sometimes suggest that I'm 
somewhat skeptical of the of our understanding of the relationship between human activity and the climate, uh, I often am greeted with the clever response, well, 97% of scientists disagree with you, and, and you're only an economist. So how, how can you hold that view, given that there's this massive consensus uh, that 97% of scientists uh, are convinced? Uh, what's, the, what's your reaction to that? Well, I'm in the 97%. That is to say, if it's true that 97% of scientists uh, are of a particular view about climate, then let's go and ask what that view is. And if you go and look at the origin of that figure, it was that a certain poll of 79 scientists, by the way, an extraordinarily small sample, said that they 97, 97% of them agreed that human beings had influenced climate and that carbon dioxide was a greenhouse gas. Well, I'm in that group. Pretty well every skeptic I know is in that group. I'm amazed they found 3% to disagree with that, so, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So, uh, so actually, whenever you hear that 97% number, it's not referring to a consensus about dangerous climate change. It's referring to a consensus about humans' ability to affect the climate. Uh, and that covers everything from a, a tiny effect to a big effect. Now, there was a subsequent paper which claimed that 97% of papers published in this area uh, supported uh, climate change. But again, it was just about supporting man-made climate change. It wasn't about supporting dangerous climate change. So when President Obama tweeted that 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is man-made and dangerous, the first word was right, the second word was wrong just not true. I mean, I'm afraid he was just telling a lie or misinformed about that. It's n there has never been any study which has shown that 97% of scientists think climate change, uh, man-made climate change is dangerous. Um, by the way, there was a much bigger survey of members of the American Meteorological Association, most of whom are scientists and all of whom are climatologists in some sense. And that the figure there, when asked about how many of you think that climate change is likely to be dangerous, the figure there was 52%. Well, they so, still, they huge, st they still win. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I really, I'm joking, I'm laughing because I really resent, and this happens in economics as well, I really resent the implication that science is a majority rule process. Well, absolutely. It's vulgar. That was, yeah. And of course, you know, the whole point of, of science is that it, is that, as, as Richard Feynman famously said, uh, uh, science is in the business of proving uh, that experts are wrong. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, until very recently, 97% of medics agreed that cholesterol was a cause of heart disease. Now, that's gone. That theory's wrong. Pretty well everybody, well, not pretty well everybody, but, but gradually most people are realizing that just ain't true. Um, uh, dietary cholesterol, I should say. You know, cholesterol is involved in heart disease, but it's not because you're eating it in your diet. Um, and that was based on very dodgy science in the 1950s, which was enforced by a pretty ruthless consensus-building exercise that was pretty brutal to people who disagreed with it. Well, um, it's a fascinating... And we've seen this again and again in science. Yeah, well, it, it's in economics, as I said, as well, and I find it, I find it very frustrating. It's, it's obviously the case that at any point in time there can be a disagreement about, say, cholesterol, about uh, the causes of ulcers. Uh, it takes a while. It's not like everybody immediately sees the data and is immediately changes their mind. But eventually, uh, controversial theories get either accepted or rejected, and new things have to come along to change that. Uh, in economics, uh, and I'm afraid in climate change, what they have in common, of course, is that they're multi-causal complex phenomena using time series data frequently. Uh, it's very hard to measure these things with precision. And uh, but the other thing that I think that I want to emphasize here and I want to turn to is this question of where the data come from. Let's talk about the hockey stick, why the reaction to the hockey stick and the reaction of the reaction and, and why the, how that, what its impact on you was. Yes, um, the hockey stick is a, is a chart of temperatures over basically the last thousand years, um, produced in the late 1990s uh, and based on so-called proxies. Now that that means that you obviously can't measure, go back and look up the temperature in, uh, you know, Arizona in in um, 
1420 because no one was walking around with, with a thermometer there. But what you can do is look at the width of tree rings. And if you make the assumption that trees are growing faster in warmer temperatures, then you can say it was warmer then or it was colder then, and, and you can produce a chart. And if you combine lots of these proxies, you come up with a, with a rough estimate of temperature over the last thousand years. And what it appeared to show was a sort of gentle cooling for most of that time, followed by a very rapid warming in the last uh, 50 or 100 years. Corresponding um, to the onset of modernity, modern economic growth, exactly, and human activity. Exactly. Now, it turned out that there were two things badly wrong with it. One was the, uh, the, the most of the many of the data sets, the most dominant data set of all, was from bristlecone pine trees in the American West, uh, which uh, had been explicitly gathered by scientists who knew they were measuring a different phenomenon, namely uh, the fact that overgrazing in that area had caused tree bark wounds, which resulted in uh, rather rapid growth as the tree tried to cover up the wounds, if you like. It's called strip bark. But anyway, the point was uh, nobody who was actually measuring the tree rings of bristlecone pine trees thought that bristlecone pine tree ring width reflected temperature. So that data set shouldn't have been used. Uh, the second problem, well, and I'm simplifying a bit here, there's a lot of other details and a lot of other data sets to discuss, but the second problem, if you like, was that the statistical filter through which the data was passed um, called short-centered, uh, um, uh, called short-centering, um, resulted in any data series which showed a 20th century uptick being vastly exaggerated, being able to influence the final outcome several hundred, uh, more than a hundred times. Um, uh, in other words, the, the, the statistical method was, and this was beautifully demonstrated by Ross McKittrick and Steve McIntyre, a Canadian economist and uh, a mathematician, basically, uh, who were incredibly diligent in tracking this down. Um, uh, and, and they showed that actually this, this method was fishing out any data stick with any data with a hockey stick shape and giving it undue emphasis. Um, so what happens if you leave the bristlecone pines out and one other set of data from the Gaspé Peninsula in Canada? And the answer is, if you do that, the hockey stick disappears altogether. Now, this was known to the scientists doing the work, because they'd actually done that. Uh, and they accidentally revealed this when they sent a, a data file called Censored uh, into the public domain, which showed that they had discovered that without those two data sets, they couldn't get a hockey stick. Now, you know, you don't have to get lost in the details of this or start accusing people of malfeasance, which I'm not doing here. I'm just saying that... The, you know, this one incredibly influential graph, and it was influential not only on me, but on the world. It was used six times in the second uh, um, uh, assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, it was displayed at the press conference when the report was announced. Um, it was a fantastically important chart. Um, this chart was based on data which You've only got to take one data set out, and the chart changes shape completely. Now, for me, that's a real alarm bell. You know, that tells you that 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 uh, you, you know you're contamin you're potentially contaminating your 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 conclusions with very very suspect data. It, there was then a you know there were further attempts to sort of rescue the hockey stick which involved large trees from Siberia and again when you drilled down it turned out that there was one incredibly influential large tree in the sample one I mean tree. a single tree yeah yeah well it could be very now we have to it could be very informative it, it it is but of course it could be that distinctive things happened in that neighborhood that had nothing to do with the world as a whole that's the the problem. Exactly. I, this exactly. Is, I mean, if you've got a large tree growing in the shade and all the other large trees suddenly fall down because of a storm and it, it's left alone in the sun, it'll grow. It'll suddenly grow faster. That might have been what happened in the 20th century to that particular large tree. So this comes back to a point that Ed Lemer makes um, in his 
theme theme of taking the con out of econometrics, which is sensitivity analysis, that when you present something, uh, although it's more dramatic and gets you more attention when you just present one end of it, uh, it's a good idea to to describe how sensitive your results are to assumptions you make, to other other uh, sizes of other variables and what their size might be, et cetera. But what I think what I found interesting about, and I don't know anything about the large trees of Siberia, so I can't you know comment other than to agree that one tree seems unreliable, what we might call a thin reed to lean on, um, is is the reaction when that was pointed out. And, and I think this whole, I would call it the sociology of science, the way this conversation moves forward uh, is what's so depressing to me. And, and I think obviously to you as you've written about it, and I want to turn to that. So talk about how people reacted to that discovery and some of the other uh, reactions that you've received when you've come out and suggested that maybe it's not as bad as it, as it seems? Yes. Well, um, the person who's probably written most eloquently about this is Professor Judith Curry, who's a proper climate scientist, unlike me. And uh, Previous uh, Econ Talk guest, so yeah. Right. Okay, yes. And, 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 and she talks about, uh, I mean, she's fascinating about the reaction of her colleagues when she started having doubts about some of the having been herself signed up uh, to the mainstream view on this, and she started having doubts and, and challenging it and doing what she thought a scientist should do. And what we were kind of all trained, those of us who did PhDs in science, I was in zoology, but, you know, the, 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 you got gold stars in the class by, by saying during the seminar to the distinguished professor who was presenting his results in front of you, but have you thought about testing it this way? Are you sure that this effect isn't caused by something else? Aren't, or maybe you're muddling cause and effect here, you know, things like that, etc. You know, you were actually supposed to challenge. And when she started doing that and other people started doing that, instead of being uh, uh, allowed to take, have a conversation, it became you've joined the dark side, you're a heretic, you're funded by the fossil fuels, you're a denier, which is an extraordinary phrase that began to be used for anybody who didn't sign up to alarmism and was deliberately intended to uh, echo uh, the uh, Holocaust denial nonsense. Um, and uh, so it became very much the psychology of taboo in, in a phrase that's quite often used, um, uh, that it was taboo to question this, that you... that that. If, if you thought that the hockey stick wasn't a reliable piece of data, um, uh, then you you were somehow um, uh, sinning against the orthodoxy, and you were being unhelpful because the world needed urgent action on climate change, uh, and this this continues to become more and more powerful a, a, a meme. And what you find now is that. For example, in my profession, in journalism, very few people now ask the sort of question, uh, sort of skeptical questions about climate science that they do about economic policy, political policy, foreign policy, etc. Uh, you know, they don't subject it to the same sort of scrutiny because they've been kind of frightened off by this. How dare you? How dare you not? Uh, join in um, uh, this um, this bandwagon. You know, it's a fascinating, now, fascinating thing because it, it it goes against the culture of of the profession, as you point out. And yet, in this corner, it's um, I think it has an, an effect. Well, I've actually changed my mind a little on this. I used to think this was an exception that science is is. Actually, you know, the whole point of science is challenge and so on. And I can see why in climate science this has happened. And that's because the IPCC process has sort of made a single church out of it, whereas science is often a very geographically distributed enterprise with people in different universities all over the country and all over the world challenging each other, which is actually quite helpful. You know, the fact that there are rival groups prepared to say Professor Jones has got this wrong uh, is 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 what has made science what has kept science honest all these years, but actually, if you look back at other episodes in science, there is a surprisingly strong tendency for this to happen. And I, I refer again to cholesterol, 
um, I refer to Lysenkoism. Well, that was in a totalitarian regime where one biologist was able to, Trofim Lysenko was able to insist on his version of uh, genetics uh, and even got his um, some of his opponents Im- imprisoned. Um, but, you know, even things like continental drift and the age of the earth, the, there's, it's often been very hard. Uh, or, or you mentioned stomach ulcers. You know, the, the, the two Australians who uh, 20 years ago said, I don't think stomach ulcers are caused by what we think they are. We think they're caused by a bacterium, which is easily cured by antibiotics. They were hounded and ridiculed and vilified for this absurd heresy um, uh, until they, well, they ended up with a Nobel Prize and we now recognize they were 100% right and the others were wrong. But it, it it's, it's not at all unusual for scientists, for science to do this, to, to, to start championing one cause and making one church out of things. Um, uh, and by the way, th- there's an element of confirmation bias here. And confirmation bias is an important aspect of what happens. In other words, if I champion, if I come up with a theory, then I'm not going to go out and look for ways in which this theory is wrong. I'm going to look at, go out and look for ways in which this theory is right. <laughs> and that's no, what we all do. We all act like the prosecuting attorney who's trying to prove his case um, rather than being... The, and, and scientists will often claim we're the only profession that challenges our own ideas. It's not really true, actually. Most of them actually look for confirmatory evidence. And by the way, I don't think we should stop them. I don't think it's possible to expect, you know... Professor Jones at such and such universities come up with a new idea uh, to suddenly be his own worst enemy. Uh, it's just unrealistic that. But what I do think we should expect is that Professor Smith should be Professor Jones's worst enemy. <laughs> That's right. what's kept science honest over the years. That's right. And I, I've been writing recently about how hard it is for economists to change each other's minds with data that, and that suggests that maybe economics is not so scientific, but the fact is, is that no, what, I think it's a very similar situation. Right. I think you're absolutely right. Well, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Semmelweis and uh, purple fever when women were dying in childbirth. Absolutely, Semmelweis went out and he did a couple of quick, small experiments that confirmed his theory, which was people needed to wash their hands when they left the morgue before they went to deliver uh, children, babies in the maternity ward, and he was laughed at and. He, it wasn't open and shut to the other people. In fact, what was the opposite? His theories were obviously kooky and crazy. Worse than la- laughed at. He was he was driven out. Correct. He was, you know, and he went mad in the end and all that. So, uh, speaking of going mad, uh, you've been <laughs> harassed quite a bit lately on a personal. By the way, the other part about this that's that's frustrating is that uh, you don't expect academics and scientists or social scientists, in the case of economics, to be name callers. And I don't know whether this is an it's tempting to say this is a modern phenomenon. I suspect it's not. I have a feeling that scientists in the 18th century and uh, 19th century probably had ad hominem attacks on their uh, opponents as well. But uh, Yes, I think that's true, actually. It, yeah. It's a strange yeah. thing, though, that when you put an idea forward that you're called a bad name rather than uh, having a patient explanation of, of why you're wrong. And I think the fact – my view is, is the angrier and ruder my opponents get – uh, that suggests that I'm doing okay because if it weren't getting it under their skin, they could just say, well, he's wrong and here's why, and it'd be black and white and open and shut, and it's not, and that's part of the problem. But you've been um, you've been under some attacks lately. So w- what has happened and and what is that? what's that been like? Uh, yes, well, um, uh, just to illustrate your point, there's an old saying, when you're taking flak, you know you're over the target zone. Um, there you go. <laughs> but... Um, uh, I, 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 I took a lot of personal attacks. People attack my motives. Uh, and it's true that I have got uh, personal investments in uh, coal mining near my home. In fact, my family's been in it one way or another for a couple of hundred years. Uh, you know, So maybe I have a vested interest in carbon dioxide emissions. But I've always declared that. I've always made that very explicit. So it, you, know, it, 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 you owned that coal when you were worried about global warming. Well, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's right. In that, fact, that kind of gives you to, a to some defense. extent. It, it's held me back. I've sort of thought, well, you know, just be, I better not. Um, you know, I, I must be being influenced by my own vested interests here, so I'd better be careful. So for a long time, I hesitated before expressing my skepticism for that reason. Um, uh, 
but anyway, I, I was attacked for that. I was, but uh, extraordinary attacks. I mean, really bizarre attacks would would come at me. Uh, very personal, very rude. Um, often uh, of the nature of this strange sort of fact checking, which doesn't check facts. You know, which says uh, his article is full of errors. Uh, and then doesn't actually give any example of anything right. that's errors. You know, they might say he said X, but he didn't say Y. Well, that's not an error. It's an omission, but it's not an error. You know, or something like that. So often, some so it, it got nastier and nastier the more I put my head above the parapet on this. And eventually, I wrote an article for the Times in London um, saying, "Why is it my views on this are pretty mild? Actually, I'm, I'm not. I'm a lukewarmer. You know, I'm not a skeptic." Why are the attacks so nasty? Why do some of my colleagues in the House of Lords resort to uh, impugning the the quality of my PhD thesis, which was on the behavior of yeah, birds that, thirty-five years ago? I found that very entertaining. Actually, I looked, <laughs> after you wrote about that, I looked, I followed up, and, and I looked into it. That's amazing. But I, having having, and by the way, I'm sure there were you know, mistakes in my thesis, but it, you know, the, the the very man who impugned me had been my thesis examiner and said it's a very good thesis in the Yeah, end. that's awkward. I don't, that's very awkward. Anyway, I, I really wrote this up as a sort of entertaining story. Just, you know, this is what happens if you step into this arena. You get a lot of mud thrown at you. And it wasn't, I, I really wasn't, I was really trying to be quite lighthearted and, and, and say that it, it, this happens and it's the way the world is. Um, I wasn't trying to play the victim card or anything like that. Anyway, the reaction to this article was another of these pieces uh, in The Guardian, dissecting my article and showing what an evil person I was to have written even this article. Uh, and the illustration at the head of this article was of the severed head of a zombie. Uh, and it the implication was that uh, I was a, a, a sort of zombie person who's views were so old-fashioned and so dead that they needed to be cut out. And the article virtually said as much. Uh, and then below the article, somebody wrote a comment saying, shouldn't uh, that be Matt Ridley's head in the picture? Um, and somebody else said, isn't that going a bit far? And he said, um, no, I think we should do this kind of thing. This was the day that a Japanese hostage was beheaded in Syria. Um, and then somebody else put a comment saying, the man who's just made these two comments about Matt Ridley being beheaded is actually, although he's using a pseudonym, a chap called Gary Evans who occasionally writes for The Guardian. He shouldn't be doing this. This is not just an ordinary internet troll. That comment was then removed by the editors, but not the, the comments recommending that I be beheaded. At which point, I someone drew this to my attention and I wrote a letter to the editor of The Guardian saying, excuse me, this is you know, uh, this is technically hate speech and death threats. I'm not going to give it to the police, but I really do think you'll do something about that. And at that point, they did intervene and remove these these threats, but it took them three weeks to apologize for this. Now, I'm not, I'm not again, I'm not claiming that my safety was genuinely threatened uh, here, but I am claiming that that goes too far, that, you know, come on. All I'm saying is that I think we may be spending too much money enriching wind wind farm tycoons and too little money reducing poverty with fossil fuels at the moment because I don't think climate change is going to be as dangerous in a hundred years time as you think. Um, that's, I might be wrong in that. I might feel guilty for having had that view in 50 years time as the earth heats up rapidly, but I don't think it's illegitimate for me to make that argument. And I certainly don't think it, it requires threats to cut my head off. Uh, I'm on the same page there. Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to say that I want to digress here for a moment, and I want to mention that uh, I get suggestions from time to time to have on this program uh, people running for president or current politicians, and I, 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 I always respond by saying I don't believe in having politicians on Econ Talk because you know they. They're not truth seekers. They're they're generally not educators. They're not interested in finding the truth. They have a message to deliver, and I, I that's what they do. And nothing wrong with that. But that's just not what we do here. So I do want to. I should say, Matthew, you are the an exception to this policy. In, in some dimension, you are an office holder. You are not a an American. I uh, remember an American political system, but you are in the House of Lords. And the, I have to also add that the. 
the dialogue that, that you linked to in a recent article, we'll put a link up to it as well, uh, where you were arguing with, with some fellow um, members of parliament, it's just unbelievable. It's just, first of all, the quality is very high, which is a tribute to the British educational system or the British people. I don't know what it is. Uh, the idea that American uh, members of Congress could argue with such eloquence on either side is uh, would be uh, absurd. But um, you are a politician in some dimensions, so I, I just want to get that. We have to be honest about that. Yeah, indeed. Well, let, let me just pick you up on one word, though. Office holder is wrong. Uh, I'm a backbench um, conservative member of the House of Lords, uh, which means I'm one of 800 people who are in a position where they can take part in debates on and votes on legislation in the upper house of parliament, which is, by the way, the far more, far less powerful house, uh, the house that is always, that always gives way on legislation. It's not as powerful as the Senate or, or the house of representatives in, in our system. So in that sense, I am a very, very low form of life politically, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I am a politician in that sense. Um, but I'm not a politician in the sense of being on message or representing a view of the government. In fact, judging by the exchange I had yesterday with government minister in the House of Lords, I'm probably not flavor of the month with my own government at the moment, but that's another matter. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, I, I found myself with this opportunity to uh, express my views both in the political arena and in through my journalism. Um, but debates in the House of Lords are often just about expressing views rather than insisting on policies, if you see but, what I mean. Yeah, I, I, do, I am just, trying to influence policy. But, 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 but the, other thing, I wanna, the other thing I want to clarify, uh, your position in the House of Lords, um, are you up for election in any... Um, I'm soon. Uh, yes, well, that's a very good point. I'm I'm not running for re-election ever again because, in theory, I'm appointed for life now. How does but, that work? Um, well, everybody in the House of Lords is appointed for life. Uh, they literally can stay there till till um, they fall apart. Um, people increasingly retire rather than fall apart. But there we go. Um, I'm not. Uh, most nearly all members of the House of Lords are appointed by either the governing party or by another, a different mechanism. Um, I'm actually in an unusual group of people who hold hereditary titles, like the ones that the barons at Magna Carta had, um, and a small percentage of whom are still allowed to sit in the House of Lords, and they select among themselves who that group is. So if you like, there's an electoral college of hereditary peers who elect a small number to the to, to be in the House of Lords? I'm one of those, and the reason I'm a hereditary peer is because three and a half generation, four generations ago, one of my ancestors was a senior member of Parliament, in elected member of Parliament, and was given a peerage as a as a by Queen Victoria in 1900. So I'm nothing like an ancient baron from Magna Carta time, but I have got one of these titles, which enables me to stand for. A sort of election, but a very small election to the House of Lords. I'm sorry about that digression into well, Britain's given bizarre constitution. Given that and we my recently, position, go ahead. Now, my my position may not last. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a group which is often thought to be an anomaly in the, in the current constitution. Kind of a dinosaur, right? I mean, it's um, kind of perfect Absolutely. for a climate for a lukewarmer. I think you're. Uh, you're, you're really holding an appropriate position in the government. I, we recently had an episode on the Magna Carta here at, at Econ Talk, and I just I want to say there's no limit to what you can learn by listening to this program, and, and that we've just had another example of that. So for those of you who weren't quite clear on the House of Lords, uh, we've, we've, I hope, uh, made you wiser, so that's good. I've only scratched the surface of the complication. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, the way to think of the House of Lords is a gigantic think tank where we talk about things, I think. <laughs> well, as I said, the quality is very high. Now, let, let's um, – I'm going to put, I'm gonna put you uh, uh, in an uncomfortable position. Uh, you resent, as do I, when your opponents presume uh, that you're not a nice person, that you must be – the pawn of special interests, and yet we also should judge our intellectual opponents the way we'd like to be judged. So given how you are in a minority viewpoint, 
can you give us an interpretation of the people on the other side that is more charitable? Uh, you've suggested they're they're at the trough. They've they are making a lot of money off of this through research grants and government spending. Surely some of them are well-intentioned people genuinely worried about the state of the world. Can you give Absolutely. them can it's you give a, them their due and what would they say? What would some of those folks say listening to your lack of concern? Well, you're you're absolutely right, and it's a vital corrective. And I uh, I always try to do what you say and not make ad hominem arguments or, or question people's motives. Uh, I don't always succeed, I must admit, but I I, I, I like to think I'm not always. I'm generally um, responding rather than initiating these sort of exchanges. Um. Uh. Yes, I think there are uh, a lot of people who. Um, have, I mean, there, there, there are some people who know perfectly well that I'm right and are nonetheless determined because they're on the bandwagon to keep going. Of course, there's going to be some like that. But I think the vast majority of people have not read deeply into climate science. Uh, and I've read quite deeply, but I won't claim that I read deeply enough, you know, or, or as much as other people. But the vast majority of people who have a strong view on this, whether it's in environmental organizations, in politics, or in journalism, uh, or even in everyday life, have read, have read only the, have only scratched the surface and have somehow equated in their mind the fact that climate has changed with a threat, with the fact that it's dangerous. And it's that illusion, that uh, that um, elision between. Um, uh, so when somebody, so, so people will often say to me, "Oh, come on, you've got to admit the spring, the birds have arrived earlier this spring. Therefore, we face a dangerous future." The icebergs are me, melting. That, that, that therefore is is a gigantic yeah. leap. So I, I don't think that those kind of people are being intellectually dishonest at all. Uh, I just think they've failed to appreciate that there's a difference between climate changing and climate changing dangerously. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I therefore feel that there's a chance to have a reasonable conversation with such people. Um, uh, now, of course, there are others who know even more than me and who still remained alar remain alarmed. And that's not necessarily because they're corrupt in some way. It's because we all look at the evidence and see what we want to see to some extent, and no doubt I'm doing the same. I mean, when I when I see a, a piece of evidence saying we reckon now that there was no pause in global warming over the last 15 to 18 years, because if you look at the way sea surface temperatures were measured. Once they started using intakes of water into ships rather than buckets thrown over the sides of the ships, they introduced a distortion that appeared to lead to a cooling of the temperatures when in fact it didn't. I look at that and think, oh, come on, you're trying really hard to find an excuse. Whereas they look at that and think, ha ha, see, you guys were wrong. Now, <laughs> take another piece of data and I might take their view and they might take our view. So we're back to confirmation bias that, that if you look hard enough, you can find lots of evidence to be alarmed about global warming while being intellectually honest. And if you look hard enough, you can find lots of evidence not to be alarmed while being intellectually honest. But if it was a 50-50 fight where we were each allowed to have that view, fine. I would. It's like it's like thinking that social justice is more important than wealth creation or vice versa. You know, um, uh, I.e. left versus right in politics. They're not scientific um, questions. It's not a scientific question. Yeah, yeah. That, that's alarming. That, that that makes people uncomfortable, but I think that's unfortunately where we are with many issues. I don't know if that's where we are with climate change. I I just want to make, make a personal note that um, I've always been – I would call myself agnostic or skeptical about the uh, the climate change debate, partly for the reasons you mentioned that – uh, a lot of the so-called cures strike me as very dangerous, holding uh, – raising the price of energy when the world's very – a large portion of the world's very poor strikes me as a cruel uh, thing to do. Um, and so the uncertainty and the failure to be – to predict accurately has always suggested to me that, that they don't – scientists don't fully understand this, even though, as you point out, I'm certainly very ignorant. You, you're talking about yourself. I'm very ignorant 
of the details. I've not read deeply, but I have a certain intuition from my knowledge of economics and how research is done. And when I see people repeatedly underestimating, overestimating the, overestimating the impact of, a, of carbon dioxide, I start to think, hmm, why aren't they starting to get more humble about their approach? They don't. They, get, they seem to get more certain, and that causes, yeah. me, that causes me to be skeptical. Then I have somebody like Nassim Taleb, who I've learned a lot from, who's very alarmed about it. I have Martin Weitzman, who was very uh, uh, humble and, and very willing to admit that we don't know that much about it. So I start to think, well, maybe we should be more prudent. Maybe we should be more cautious. Mm-hmm. Then Matt yeah. Ridley, who's a fine fellow. And even though he doesn't, well, that's even, very nice. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't like the. He doesn't like the Tottenham Hotspurs like I do. But he's a fine fellow, and I gave a talk in London that he he came to it, and I thought, well, what a decent chap. And, it was and a really, really good talk. That's by kind the way. of you. But as a result, I find myself, oh, I can go back to my old view now because Matt, Matt's a you know. So I'm being honest here, and I'm kind of exaggerating for for dramatic effect. But I think it's fascinating to me. How, as you point out, people who have little or no expertise in this area have an immense amount of confidence. Uh, and it's based on trust, uh, respect for authority, and a, a lack of skepticism. That, and, and there's a confirmation bias. You become identified with a certain position. It becomes awkward, socially embarrassing to concede that you maybe were wrong. Um, I just find it fascinating how hard it is to get at the truth in an area that has become as politicized as this one has. I completely agree with that. And by the way, you said one thing there which I think is important, and that is that none of this would matter if the measures we were taking were costless. But uh, one of the reasons why Martin Weissman's view to me is not attractive uh, is because uh, he's saying, look, we've got to do something just in case there's damage to our great-grandchildren. Well, I'm saying, yeah, but to damage poor people today because you're worried about the fate of your great-grandchildren, doesn't seem to me to be altruistic. Quite the reverse. It feels selfish to me. And I think that's a... So none of this would matter if we weren't taking measures in terms of uh, energy policy, in terms of biofuels, in terms of denying electricity to the people who really need it in in the third world, affordable electricity, I should say. Um, uh, those Those are genuine costs. Nobody denies that we're costing ourselves and our and humanity something with the measures we're taking i just uh, i think we're um taking chemotherapy for a cold well i think the right response to this mix of alarm versus maybe it's not so bad and this mix of uh, an uncertain catastrophe in the future and a certain catastrophe today because of the measures you're taking i think the right response to that is to is to favor Policies that mitigate the worst of of the of the effects we're talking about. So, if we are to do something about climate change, putting on a tax on carbon while lowering an income tax—not that that's ever going to happen politically—seems uh, like an attractive way to do something. Uh, yep. Putting a tax on developed, reducing usage in developed countries that are rich relative to countries that are desperately trying to to get out of poverty that's killing people seems like a good idea. And that's also politically a dead end. So that leads us, I think, to what those, – those two being political dead ends leads me to where I think we will ultimately go, which is to uh, adaptation. We will cope with the climate that changes, and that will mean maybe a little more air conditioning, which will be – ideally will be wealthier because we didn't pursue some of these costly uh, policies that, that have been advocated for uh, – would you recommend doing anything, uh, and would you, or would you rely oh, yes. on adaptation? Yeah, no, um, well, I, I agree with you that adaptation is important. And in fact, the IPCC in its uh, latest report says this. It has a, a, a report recommending huge amounts of adaptation, much more than it's ever recommended before. This, for some reason, is always ignored by people who are talking about this uh, these days, but it's a very important part of what they're recommending, and they're dead right. But the other thing I would do, as well as adaptation, is research. In other words, as people like Bjorn Lomborg have argued, uh, instead of rolling out inefficient, highly expensive 14th century technologies like wind uh, in a vain attempt to cut carbon emissions, which their fate, which is signally failing to do on any significant scale, why don't we research energy 
really intensively. Um, uh, you know, so at the moment we're putting about a hundred times as much money into subsidising the production of energy from renewables as we are into R and D in renewables and nuclear. And that's where we, you know, let's get fusion, let's get uh, thorium, let's get molten salt reactors, let's get all these ideas for zero carbon energy properly and fundamentally researched because one of them is going to provide us with an answer that will blow fossil fuels out the water and impoverish people like me and good for them. Um, you know, but let's do that rather than subsidize crummy old technologies that are making that are making terribly little difference and are chopping up eagles and ruining landscapes and all the other things that wind power does sorry you've got me onto a hobby horse here and you um you you've said you could make some money on wind personally yes, um i i i'm a landowner in the north of england um i i get letters through the post from not only wind developers but solar developers offering mouth-watering sums of money if I would let them build on my land. But those sums of money would come from the energy bills of people. That's the way we do it in this country. We add a, a stealth tax onto energy bills. You know, they're pure public subsidies, tax subsidies, but they're not called taxes. They're just additions to the bills of, of people. Now, energy bills are a more important part of the budget for poor people than they are for rich people. So this is a regressive tax going from poor people to rich people. And I'm sorry, but I, I won't won't do it. Um, there was one wind turbine built on land which I don't own, but it turned out that um, uh, the mineral rights under it did belong to my family, and so I was due compensation. So I so I give that money away to charity every year. It's not very much. It's a tiny sum. What's the state of shale in in the United Kingdom right now? Well, as of today, uh, or the last couple of days, uh, it's been announced that it will go ahead, but it'll take about a year to start because one of the environmental regulations that's been insisted on is a 12-month uh, baseline survey of the state of uh, aquifers in the, in the region. Um, uh, in energy terms and economically, Britain's shale position is very, very promising indeed. We've got a thing called the Boland Shale, which... It seems to have about 1,400 trillion cubic feet of gas in it, which is huge, bigger than the Marcellus in Pennsylvania, probably one of the biggest reserves yet found in the world of shale gas. Very rich, very deep, very thick. Um, uh, uh, all the techniques developed in the United States should work here. But we are hedging it about with so much in the way of environmental uh, measures about um, earth tremors, uh, uh, contamination of water, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, that I fear that it will take a very, very long time for it to become economic. And we are insisting on the distribution of profits to local communities, which is a good idea, but to the point where it might, again, make it uneconomic. So the jury is still out on whether it's going to work economically, but the idea that Britain could produce as much energy from shale onshore in the UK as it has produced in the way of gas from its offshore um, reserves in the last 30 years is extremely plausible. And we've had a huge amount of gas out of the North Sea. Let's close with um, your optimism. You wrote a book called The Rational Optimist. Uh, one could argue that that's a bias that you have to face in this area. Uh, I share that I don't, I don't know if it's bias is the right word, uh, uh, an, a preconceived notion that human creativity is um, bigger than people often anticipate, in particular how we will move around on this earth in 50 years, whether we're going to still use gasoline-powered cars and uh, airplanes is to me a very open question. I think we're going to do all kinds of incredible things and we'll find ways to do things more cheaply and adapt and find – ways to use less energy, and I don't know what the future holds, I, but I remain somewhat optimistic. Uh, do you share that? Well, you say that I had a preconceived uh, optimism, but it's only preconceived because of my experience over the last 30 or 40 years, and this is another of my arguments for being skeptical about dangerous climate change. I've witnessed the failure of apocalyptic predictions on so many different things in the last 
three decades, that it has very much influenced my view. I now approach apocalyptic production, uh, predictions with, with great skepticism. So when I was young, uh, the uh, population explosion was unstoppable, famine was inevitable, the oil was running out, a nuclear winter was coming, the desert was advancing, the tropical rainforests were going to be totally destroyed, uh, SARS and bird flu and swine flu, uh, the uh, sperm counts were going to collapse, acid rain, ozone layer. Um, I've lived through all of these, I've covered several of them, and I've always, always, always come to the conclusion that the most alarming predictions are the ones that get the most coverage and are the ones that are most wrong. So I don't see why it should be any different in this case. Um, uh, and if I had believed everything that grown-ups told me in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I would expect this to be a very bleak world by now, where life expectancy had fallen, where pollution was terrible, where... Uh, living standards had dropped, where famine was widespread, none of those things happened. In fact, there were extraordinary improvements in lifespan, child mortality, uh, health, wealth, uh, happiness, uh, IQ, violence, you know, all these things have improved. And um, I find it very implausible that that it cannot happen again because the mechanism by which we innovate, i.e. by exchanging ideas, got a heck of a lot easier in the last 10 or 15 years thanks to the internet so i think it's very likely we will produce innovations that improve people's living standards during the current century now that doesn't mean we can't have a disastrous world war a descent into superstition a collision with an asteroid there are all sorts of things that could go wrong in this century but i think there's every likelihood that the great-grandchildren who will face one or two degrees of warming in the next century uh, will actually be pretty wealthy people. And funny enough, that's what the IPCC says too. If you look at their charts of GDP per capita, they're between 3 and 16 times higher by 2100 than they are today. My guest today has been Matt Ridley. Matt, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Russ, it's great to talk. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.